Google have a free tool for this as well. Oh, right. You can search for it on Google. That's the best way to find it. It's called the mobile friendly test. So that will tell you whether it passes Google's mobile friendly criteria. And it will just basically say yes, passes or no fails. Um, And if it fails, it will actually give you instructions on what you need to do to fix those factors. And you can just take those instructions and send them off to your website developer and have them implement them. So. This is Ari Mizell from lessdoing.com, and you're listening to my friend Ash Roy on the Productive Insights Podcast. Welcome to the Productive Insights Podcast, where you can learn how to systemize, automate, and scale your business via the internet. To access previous episodes and useful productivity tips, go to www.productiveinsights.com. Now, here's your host, Ash Roy. This episode is brought to you by the Productive Insights Done For You podcast launch service, which positions you as a leading authority in your market and successfully turns listeners into high-value repeat customers. Book a call with me on callashroy.com to discuss how we can get started. I look forward to speaking to you soon and helping you position yourself as a market leader. Now, if you enjoyed this episode, you will probably enjoy listening to some other episodes a few of which are mentioned in this podcast episode. Episode number 15 with Mike Rhodes, where I talk about Google AdWords secrets and how he has become one of the leading authorities in Google AdWords today. Episode number 13 with James Reynolds on how to create a highly successful services business. Episode number 38 with Rand Fishkin, the founder of Moz.com, on how to create great SEO-friendly content, plus key trends in search today. Episode number 41 with Eric Enger on Mobile Get-In. We talked about that quite a lot in this episode, so you definitely want to check that one out. Episode number 57 with Lisa Myers on creative content mindset and her favorite Star Wars quote. Lisa is the founder of Verve Search, and she had some excellent insights on SEO-friendly content creation. And episode number 75 with Joe Polizzi, the founder of the Content Marketing Institute, which really addresses some important questions around how to create content that meets your buyer where they are in their journey. And episode number 82 with Mike Rhodes, when I had him back recently to discuss the Google Display Network and what has been happening in that space. As always, I'll link to all those episodes in the show notes. And I will also link to callashroy.com so you can book an appointment to discuss how to launch your own podcast, which will position you as a market authority in your field. Welcome to the Productive Insights Podcast. This is Ash Roy, the founder of ProductiveInsights.com. And our guest today has started his career with a very humble beginning as an employee in a startup photography business. He took it from a three-person outfit to a 50-person outfit with multi-million dollars in annual turnover. His passion is for marketing. He started an online marketing agency which covered websites, social media, etc. But it's now evolved into a more purely traffic agency, which is the stuff that he really loves, and he has over 50 clients under management. He's spoken alongside some very notable speakers like Michael Gerber, who wrote The E-Myth, Larry Wingett, Chris Brogan, Scott Stratton, and in fact, he was recently in a successful Guinness Book World Record attempt at the longest ever online seminar. I recently had the honor of sharing the stage with him at Superfast Business Live, and in 2014, he's been named the chairman of the Middle East 
first and only search engine marketing conference, the Search Exchange. I'm delighted to welcome a guest, James Reynolds from Viravo.com and the recent owner of SEOpartner.com. Welcome, James. Awesome. Thank you, Ash. That was a fantastic introduction. And we're actually over, I think we're well over 100 retail customers now and with um, wholesale customers, we're far bigger than that. So yeah, we're we're growing nicely. That's right. (laughs) And I'm sure the acquisition has helped too. Absolutely. Yes, it certainly has. And thanks for bringing that up. Yeah. Yeah, Congratulations on that, man. I mean, it's, I've been connected to the business for a while now through James Tramco before you. And I'm really, really happy to hear that it's still in good hands after James to another James. And I just actually wanted to share with our listeners that if they want to get a website check done, they can get an excellent web check done for $20 from seopartner.com. Is that correct? Yeah, that is. Yeah, the team will go in, look over the site, look at its SEO capabilities and where it falls short and prescribe some action steps to help those sites rank better. So yeah, it's a good use of $20 investment. You'll get yeah. a good return out of that. And miss out on that at your own risk, listeners. Okay. (laughs) So, James, we've got a lot of really interesting stuff to talk about today. And I wanted to keep the conversation fairly tactical and quite meaty. So I'm going to reference some of the content that you've shared at Superfast Business Live and even some of the stuff that you've referred to in your recent interview with James Schramko on Superfast Business uh, Podcast. So let's start with the question I have about mobile get-in. Now, I interviewed Eric Enger in episode 41 from Stone Table Consulting, which was a really fun interview. And we talked about Mobile yeah. Geddon. And, and at that time, Mobile Geddon had just been sort of the soft launch, if you like, of Google had just happened. It had just done the soft rollout. And it was due to be rolled out in full a little bit later, which has recently happened. So yeah. would you like to talk about what Mobile Geddon is, James, and then talk about what this full-on rollout means for our listeners who are primarily self-employed professionals and entrepreneurs who are looking to build their businesses through online, through the online channel. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess to sort of break down some terminology, Mobile Geddon was the sort of industry tagline, industry name that was given to the mobile update that Google rolled out. Google's intent with the mobile update was to essentially promote websites that were mobile friendly and had good experience on the mobile device and demote websites that had a bad experience on the mobile device. And this would totally make sense because mobile usage is growing and growing. Everyone is going from desktops to laptops to tablets and to mobile. And their real directive now is mobile first. They're doing more than twice the amount of testing on mobile devices as they are doing on desktop devices because they realize that's where the users are. So yeah, you're totally right, Ash. First rollout of this was in around April 2015. And then the full rollout occurred just this year in the last sort of month or so. I haven't got the exact dates, but it's been a pretty recent occurrence. And that's also normal for Google. What they like to do with any changes to the algorithm and how they assess results is roll it out on you know a small basis, um, get some feedback on the update, see if it's adversely affected any websites that shouldn't have been affected, and just see how the whole change has played out. And if they're confident, then it's good. They'll roll it out on a larger scale or they'll make some adaptations and then they'll roll it out again. So when the first rollout happened, most people's perception was that it was going to be a huge thing. Google had made a lot of song and dance about it, quite rightly so. And um, everyone in the search space was then getting pretty frightened about it. Everyone was changing their websites, making sure they were mobile friendly. But when the actual rollout happened, the 
sentiment was quite different. You know, there didn't seem to be that many changes in the results. You know, it didn't look on the face of it as though Google were using it as a, a very large factor. I remember um, Eric saying that actually in our conversation. Well, actually, Eric and his team did some testing on this, which I... Testing, yeah. He talked about that too, yeah. Which I've I've alluded to in uh, in a recent post that I've done. So actually, the initial rollout had a larger effect than people thought was the case. So there's always a, a good case for testing this stuff, not just take it on your own perception. And actually, yeah, the effect was bigger. There was a, roughly a 25% decline or loss, if you like, to results of sites that were not mobile friendly and, a, and an overall general positive improvement in results for those websites that that were mobile and friendly. We don't have really too much data yet, or at least I don't, to hand of how the the latest update, the big rollout has occurred, but we certainly know this. Google care a lot about mobile, and you should too as a business owner. More and more people are moving to mobile devices. Searches are shifting there. Web browsing is shifting there. And it's not going to be too long before really our desktop computers, our laptop computers are used for only very sort of specialized usage. Yes. Transactions, different types of search intense, maybe when you're you know, needing to be at a, at a browser for longer periods, that's when you'll go to your desktop. But the primary device now is one of these things. So that's where we need to be thinking about for sure. Great point. And to corroborate what you're saying, Apple's most recent announcement of their software, you're seeing an increasing amount of merging between their desktop software and their mobile software. And uh, I can't remember what they're calling the new one is Sierra or something like that. But that new Apple OS, the desktop OS, is very, very similar to their mobile, including releasing Siri onto that. Now, something else Mm -hmm. I also wanted to mention was Eric Enger made a really beautiful point when we spoke in episode 41, and Rand Fishkin kind of echoed this in episode 38, and that was Google ultimately only cares about the search experience. So if yep. the search is heading towards a mobile device, then guess what? They are going to make that as optimized as possible for mobile. Now, what this means to the listeners is if your site is not mobile responsive, you need to get on that quickly. And by mobile responsive, I mean that a quick way to check to see whether your website is mobile responsive or not is if you look at your website on a mobile phone and all the icons are really tiny and you aren't seeing the main menu items as a sort of drop down, like with three little dashes or something on the side, instead you're seeing them as these tiny little icons across the top of your screen, that means it's not mobile responsive. The font is tiny and hard to read. It's not mobile responsive. And you need to get your site mobile responsive because otherwise it will not appear as high on mobile search results. Is that correct, James? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I guess sort of moving on further than that, you also not convert business, you know, but it's a, ultimately Google sentiment about making things mobile friendly is to ensure that the experience also once people get to the end websites is good. And if someone reaches your site and they can't use it because they are doing what you're saying, actually having to push and pull the screen to try and find stuff, that's a pretty surefire People are going to get frustrated with that. They'll click the back button. They'll go to sites that are going to serve them better on mobile devices. So Google's intent is all about experience. That's why we're seeing them move now and changing the search results layouts. I mean, these things occur all the time. But you'll look at the search results desktop and you'll now see that they very much mirror the search results layout that exists on a mobile device. There's less clutter. There's now, they're even testing, I don't know if you've seen it, Ash, these sort of boxed results where it comes up in little panels. Yes. Um, and that, again, is a mobile-first-led design change. So you'll see that typically now stuff rolls out on mobile first and then desktop will almost be the afterthought. And I think wow. in terms of how we approach our business now, we actually do have to think about designing our website 
probably in most cases, not necessarily all, but most cases thinking about the mobile experience first, because as time goes by, certainly the experience is moving then, even if people are predominantly accessing your site on desktop first now, as would be the case with my business for sure, um, that shift is moving. And before too long, you know, regardless of business type, I think the desktop is kind of on its way out um, and mm. will only be used for specialized sort of um, interactions, if you like. Another really interesting thing that uh, came out of my conversation with Rand Fishkin was that he believes that mobile usage is actually not so much growing at the expense of desktop. I'm not saying it isn't. It is growing at the expense of desktop, but there is some element of independent increase in mobile consumption. So people are consuming content while they're falling asleep and all that sort of stuff. So my point is that as a business owner, if you want to get in on previously untouched space, in terms of people's time, you know, we, they used to talk about share of wallet. Now I think in terms of share of attention, if you want to get in on that share of attention that is currently untapped, where people are consuming content exclusively on mobile, then guess what? That's another reason you need to have your site mobile responsive. Now, another good point is, and I need to do this for my own website, actually, now that you mention it. After having made sure your website is mobile responsive, another good thing to do is probably go and check out your site on a mobile because guess what? There may still be some elements of it that are even though it's mobile responsive, it's not optimized for mobile. So for example, if you have a really cluttered page or if you have really tiny font, it's hard to read. These things will affect the user experience. These affect what you call dwell time or what Google calls dwell time, which means that people don't hang around in your site for long enough. And that also can affect your rankings, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that was the sort of point we touched on before. If people can't utilize the site the experience is not good they are not going to stick around very long and of course you don't want that as the website owner because you're going to be losing you know customers and and visitors to your site but also it's a very good litmus test for google as to how your website is being received and if they're sending people from the search results to your site and then very quickly, those people are coming back to the search results to search again. That tells them in sense that they've not found what they're looking for um, or the experience is bad, um, which would be the cases we're talking about. And they're going to start to serve up other results to users that might serve the, the searcher better than, uh, than your site. And, and that's what right. yeah, they're measuring with this idea of dwell time, how long someone spends on your site before going back to the search results. So it's almost like when you create content and when you have your site, you've got to think of your site almost like a product. When you create a product, you think in terms of what's my competitive advantage over other products. In the same way, you've got to think of your site and your content as what competitive advantage does my site have in satisfying or solving this problem or in answering this query over my other competitor sites. Before we move on to the next thing, I wanted to also mention, if there's nothing else you take away from this episode, go to your phone Check your website on your mobile phone and make sure it's mobile responsive. That's probably the biggest takeaway I can give you and tell you that that is, if there's nothing else you do, do that much. Uh, They should probably, I I guess also as a a point, Google have a free tool for this as well. Oh, Um, right. You can search for it on Google. That's the best way to find it. It's called the mobile friendly test. So they'll tell you whether it passes Google's mobile friendly criteria and it will just basically say yes passes or no fails Um, and if it fails it will actually give you instructions on what you need to do to fix those factors and you can just take those instructions and send them off to your website developer and have them then implement them so awesome very good thing to do yeah well i'll link to that in the show notes i'll look up that link and i'll put it in the show notes so if you're listening to this episode just head over to the link on the website to this podcast and you can check out 
the link to this mobile-friendly testing. Okay, so let's talk about periodic testing. So this is something you talked about at Superfast Business Live. So periodic testing as opposed to A-B testing. Most of us don't have the luxury of having multiple sites where we can create exactly the same content on two websites and being able to compare what's working better and what's not working. So I really like what you shared with us at Supervised Business Live, where you said periodic testing. You talked about putting some information up for a period of time or some content up for a period of time, seeing how it performs and then, you know, the different content. Could you talk to us a bit more about that? Yeah, I guess in terms of sort of setting this answer up, What's really important to remember in the field of SEO is we don't really know ultimately what Google are measuring. We know the intent of what they're looking for, and we have very strong clues from them as to you know the main things that they want to see to determine whether a website experience is good, the content is trustworthy, and whether they should send visitors to your site. But we don't really know the individual elements that they're actually tracking down to you know to sort of minute detail. So. As SEOs, what we should be doing is continually testing to determine those things. And there's a variety of different ways to test and different test environments suit different test types. But such things as periodic testing, and I talked about this a little bit at Superfast Business Live, would be to run your website for a period of time, depending on your traffic levels, it might be a month period, and test one environment and record changes in ranking, record changes in impressions, and then make a switch and then test something different. So you could do this for your page titles and descriptions, which are the mm-hmm. snippets that show up in the search results. You could test short content versus long content um, on a page. You could test linking from one alternative page on your website to another and see how that passes page rank, etc. There's lots of different tests that you can do based on some hypothesis of what you think might work. And then you record how that affects your overall site performance. There are some tools out there now, actually. Distilled have just put out a tool, and I forget the exact name of it, but it's done by the guys at Distilled, which I think is distilled.net from memory, that allows a certain amount of inbuilt sort of A, B testing. So it's worth our listeners going out and checking out. It's quite advanced, but certainly we want to always be recording our results. When we make changes, we want to note those. Best to do that through annotations in Google Analytics and just see how those changes affect your overall site performance and take the learnings from that and uh, apply them going forward. Okay, so I didn't know about annotations. So you can do annotations in Google Analytics as well. Yeah. So cool. Yeah, what we would do whenever we make any large change to our site, we would go and place an annotation in Google Analytics and say, on such and such a date, this was done. And then we look at the overall site performance as it then changes over a course. And you can see then trends, and that will give you very good insights as to what cause resulted in what effect. And it's just good to to measure that stuff. And analytics is the best way to do it, yeah. That is so cool. I'm definitely going to check that out. And again, for the listeners, if you haven't got Google Analytics installed on your website, well, please do that because that is so important. If you can't measure it, you can't control it. If you can't control it, you can't improve it. So absolutely get Google Analytics happening and start using annotations. Okay, on to the next point. Now, this is something that really scared me. You talked about at the Superfast Live again, you talked about content being hijacked And if someone hijacks your content, in other words, they duplicate your content on their website, 
if you don't do the right thing around canonical tags, you could end up getting penalized because they will think that the new content is the original content or Google will think that, that the new content is the original content and they will smack you down for having unoriginal content. Is that correct? Yes, but it's not quite about originality. It's more about trust. So Google may still recognize your site as being the original author, but if another site which they deem to be more trustworthy than yours has that content placed on it, they may then give preference to that site. Now, this all links to a concept that Google use called PageRank, and PageRank is influenced or affected by other sites that link to that web property. So the more high quality websites that link to a particular page on the internet will pass page rank or authority or value to that page. Um, And any page that then links out to a third party page would again pass some of its authority or page rank through to that page that it links to. So if you've got a very high page ranking page that then takes your content and your page rank is lower than theirs, then you could be in risk of actually being outranked with your own content because Google just inherently trusts that page more. And they have no need to serve two identical results within the search results. So they're just going to pick the one with the highest page rank. So but you won't get Google slapped or anything, will you? You won't get Google slapped as long as they can understand that you're not in breach of copyright and, and stuff like that. But you are at risk of having your own content outranked within the search results by the more authoritative website. And that's where the, the risk lies. You know, you put all this effort into creating fantastic content and then you don't get the benefit of the search traffic coming through to it. So that's what you want to try and avoid. And canonical tag is a way that you can help to guide the search engines into giving preference to yours. And a canonical tag, just to take away the terminology here, is a tag that you would implement on your own site or the site linking to you, if that's the case. And you would basically say, hey, Google, this piece of content just here is the original piece of content. Just ignore the duplicate versions. This is the one that you should be giving consideration to. So that's the way to utilize it. And you can actually use it on your own site. And this was a point I made at the Superfast Business Conference. If you add the rel equals canonical tag on your own site, Uh So let's say Productive Insights podcast forward slash James Reynolds episode. If you then had someone copy that content and place it elsewhere, if we had the rel canonical tag on that page and it said that this page we're on with the full link details Uh contained in that is placed there. If someone goes and swipes that content, they'll swipe it with the canonical tag intact, which will basically tell Google that this piece of content over here is actually the original version. Can they swipe it and remove the canonical tag? Oh, of course they could, yeah. But most people are more... But no one does that. More lazy in that. Because there's the sites that are often at risk of these things like aggregators that just pull content and scrape oh, content right, from right. the internet. So quite often they're just basically pulling all of the, the source code. Okay, so now more importantly, or as importantly, how do you install a canonical tag, rel tag on your site? You ask someone who's intelligent to do it. Yeah, you get a developer to do it. So you go to seopartner.com and ask them to do it for you. Exactly, yes. That's the perfect place to go. Yeah, you can do it yourself. In fact, there's sort of plugins for WordPress that are very good. The Yoast plugin is kind of the default sort of standard now for WordPress websites, and that's a very good SEO plugin. And that has the ability to set the rel equals canonical tag. You don't need to get stuck in any sort of coding. So that will be a way to to do it. Yeah. So you can just set it up in Yoast. The thing with plugins is, you know, they often conflict with each other. And that sort of gets a little bit of a problem if you have a lot of plugins on your site. So that is something to think about as well. But presumably, plugins like Yoast tend to 
be fairly regularly updated and so they are quite compliant. Yeah, Yoast is updated quite a lot and, and it's pretty a default standard now, so it talks to most things. Um, the challenge you'll have often with, with WordPress is as standard, the sort of SEO functions that you need are not built into the core WordPress framework. So mm. most themes that you add to your site will not have the ability to add an SEO title tag or an SEO meta description tag. It won't be present within the theme. So you, then you have to get a plugin like Yoast to give you, give you the ability to add those things in. Right. There are better frameworks and themes like you know Genesis is a very popular one that's very SEO friendly that does have those core capabilities in it. So you wouldn't need a Yoast, but for most of the other standard themes, then you would uh, probably need something like that. Okay. Now, tell me something. If I have a good quality blog post that I've written on my site and I then publish it on my LinkedIn status or LinkedIn feed, uh, publish it within LinkedIn, yeah. which does Google value higher? I mean, LinkedIn is an authority site. So what happens then? You're more likely to rank for your own page. That would probably have more um, page authority. But just to kind of alleviate this and to encourage Google to rank your site first, link back from the post you published to LinkedIn to okay. the original source. And you could just use something like this post was originally published on, as you see, big websites like entrepreneur.com and stuff do this, yes. where they use syndicated content. Just link back to your original piece of content and uh, you should be. Oh, that's a great hack. Yeah, you should be just fine. Because I've got a whole stack of blog posts that I've written that I've never published on LinkedIn that I would like to start publishing on my LinkedIn profile because I've got a lot of followers on LinkedIn. And now that I know this, I will start doing that. You know, put this was originally published on. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about the biggest challenges that you find people face when it comes to improving their site's SEO. One that jumps to my mind is it's scary and complex, but what are the biggest issues that you've seen and what are the easiest ways to get through that and to overcome these challenges? My gosh, there are so many. I would say if I had to pinpoint the biggest challenge that people have, or should I maybe put it this way? The thing that people don't do that they absolutely should be doing yep. is promote their website. Um, there's this whole adage in SEO that it's all about content, which is true, but only to an extent. Content is the core of what Google are looking at. It's how they assess a website and better quality content should rank higher within the search results. So we really should be putting our attention very heavily on content. Mm -hmm. But if we don't then promote it so that other people can find it and that we can generate links to our content and all of these other major signals, the primary signals that Google want to actually be able to record and assess. If they don't happen, then we're really going to struggle with our SEO. So there is this, yeah, this is, I see it a lot. People publish a great bit of content and then just sit back and, and wait for it to rank. So I call it like right. a publish and pray. Like I'm going to, Fantastic. And then they just sit there and they hear crickets and nothing ever yeah. happens. So putting um, more attention or at least equal attention into promoting a piece of content once it's published is what's going to get you the highest reward from SEO. I mean, I've heard some people talk about, you know, 20% of your effort on creation and 80% on promotion even, which means that if you've spent, you know, 10 hours producing the content, then spend you know, whatever it is, 40 hours, you know, promoting it, which sounds very, very excessive to me. But my question to you is, what do you mean by the word promote? Are you talking advertising? Are you talking syndicating through your various, you know, Facebook and Twitter and all that stuff? What does promotion involve? 
Um, yeah, I would do those core things for sure. So um, leverage your um, own audience, um, and that would be typically through social channels. So like you've alluded to, you know, once you've created a piece of content, announce it on um, social media, do that repeatedly and often over a course of time. I don't think people leverage social enough right. for promotion of their content. They just, you know, they put up a post, they send out a tweet or they share it on Facebook and then that's it. If you produce fantastic content, it actually has a lot longer life cycle than that. And if you produce content effectively, you can break it down into smaller chunks and use those chunks over time. So yeah, certainly do that. But more of what I'm talking about is utilizing outreach to website owners and influencers who may be able to leverage your content further. Now, to make this work effectively, actually, you do have to put a considerable amount of time into the content. And I actually disagree wholeheartedly with people that say 20% content, 80% promotion. Mm -hmm. If you want your content to fly, you're going to have to put significantly more effort in than everybody else does to their content. In fact, you're going to have to go 10x you know, further than your competitors so that you create something that's so fantastically stand out that just towers over everyone else's you will get far greater return so that when you then come to do outreach and connect with influencers and website owners and put your content in front of them, they're going to be compelled to share it. And if your content is bad in the first place, then it's not going to get shared. It's not going to get linked to. So actually creating the content is as important as the promotion, but the two have to go hand in hand. By the way, I couldn't agree more with you about making sure the content is good quality. And when I was saying, you know, 10 hours to create content, at the time I was thinking of writing a blog post. I'm a trained writer and I know how much time it takes to write a good quality blog post. But I guess what I don't do enough is promote it enough. So let's quantify this a bit. So what do we mean by, you know, when we amplify content on social media or whatever, how many times is it appropriate to retweet or reshare on Facebook? Is it five times too often, too, too many, 10 times, you know, 100 times? When do you sort of say, okay, well, this has really run, done its dash. I'm not going to share it anymore. <laughs> I think that's almost a case by case. It's probably difficult to put a, a number on it. Um, I really dislike people resharing the same content over and over just there's places i've you know appeared as a as a guest or contributed to and i see these tweets popping up every single day that would the same tweet as occurred two days ago and i think that's a bit douchey um, <laughs> but if you have if you're producing very long form content which incidentally um gets um shared more statistically than short content also gets linked to more um, because people see it as being more valuable often that's the that's the science behind it if you produce very long form content then you will have the ability to break that content up into smaller pieces which could be little sub stories and micro pieces of content that you could use over time so, I mean, for instance, the, the experiments post that you alluded to when we we're talking about um, Eric um, Enger earlier, that's got 16 experiments in it. It's mm. probably around, I think it's probably seven, 8,000 words long, that post. So it's pretty deep. But we've essentially got 16 different topics that we can talk about over right. time. And that's how we would segment that content up and use it yes. in little bite-sized episodes, which is then great for syndication. So if you're doing something like LinkedIn marketing, you can create like smaller micro versions of the post, which perhaps concentrate on certain aspects of it and use that for syndication. So you've always got your master pillar piece of content sitting in the middle, and then you use little snippets and stories and feeders around that to draw people into it. And that's how you would best use social media. 
Okay. And let's talk a bit about the outreach with influencers. I've actually done quite a bit of guest posting and had quite a lot of success with it in terms of building subscribers. What are your thoughts on guest posting as an influencer outreach tactic? And are there any other influencer outreach tactics you recommend? Yeah, guest posting has its value. I think it's good when done in the right places, certainly to increase authority and reach new audiences. It has good SEO benefit, but not fantastic SEO benefit because you will have the ability when you guest post, of course, to link to your own property, but that's a self-placed link. It's a self-promotional link. So Google aren't going to value that as much, but certainly you should be doing it. I think what also works with guest posting is you can also build up relationships that could be beneficial, Mm. you know, at other times. But really what I'm talking about with outreach is, first of all, with outreach to work, you've got to create content that is perfectly aligned to the influencers who you want to share that content later on. So what is a really good Mm -hmm. exercise is to have a look in your market at the most authoritative websites and see what topics that they typically share and link to from their own content. What pieces of information are resonating and on the top of mind of those most influential people in your market. Those topics that you identify through researching influences should be the topics of content that you go and create yourself. When you create Mm. content that perfectly matches the sentiments and the interests of the influence in your market, you'll have a lot greater chance that they will share that content later. And then you need to go the next step of then just creating content that is way better than anything that currently exists in the market on that topic. So when you've got a piece of content that aligns and a piece of content that's way better than anything already out there, when you go to these influencers, they're going to be impressed. They've shared similar content in the past. There's a very high chance that they'll want to share your content too. And the way you reach them is simply through email outreach. You know, you find the contact details of the website owners. Hopefully you build up a bit of rapport in advance of that. So good to connect on Twitter and go and comment on a few of their blog posts. Make sure they know who you are before you get in contact. And then when you have something genuinely interesting for them to share, just send them an email, say, hey, buddy, I know you're interested in XYZ. Just produce something on XYZ. Do you want to check it out? Don't ask them to share it. Don't ask them to link to it. If the content is good, they'll naturally do that anyway. And then that's where the, the results occur. So it's simple as that. Create content that's better than what's already out there in the market and then let influencers know about it. And if all of those things line up, then you'll get lots of social shares and links to your site as a result. I learned some really useful practical tactics to actually do this when I was being trained to write and to get good quality guest post opportunities. And that is, you can go to Twitter and you can create a list of specific people that you want to follow. And then you will only see the tweets that those specific people are making. So let's say, I want to follow James Reynolds as an influencer. I'll follow, you know, have James Reynolds, Rand Fishkin, certain SEO people. Let's say I want to write SEO related content. And then I can just watch what you guys are tweeting and what's important to you in your world right now. And then I go and take the trouble to do the research and create good quality content. Now, if I want to find out which content is doing best on your site, say, you know, seopartner.com, I would go and get a moz.com account for the first month is free and I would go and see which content is being most shared and most ranked using that account and then I would improve on that content. So one of the little tricks I learned is don't try and reinvent the wheel. Don't try and 
come up with groundbreaking PhD level content and research behind your content, find what is already working in the market, what there is an appetite for, and then come up with a new twist on it or an improvement on it and share that with the influencer because they're more likely to share that because they're already sharing content like it. Exactly. That's the exact process. Yeah. And Moz is a great tool to do that. Um, Ahrefs is also fantastic. You can get insights from tools like BuzzSumo of what's being most shared. And um, also Google search results, to be honest, is one of the best tools. Like, Go and look at the top 10 results for a particular keyword or topic and see which sites are, are ranking. Analyze those pieces of content and find ways to make it better. And what you'll quite often find is that those content pieces are just outdated, like the mm. strategies are not necessarily current. More cases than not, the design looks like old and outdated. So if you can freshen those two things up or just go into more detail than the original post, breaking things down, making it more actionable, you can very quickly improve on what's out there. And, and that's the process. Yeah, I mean, that literally is it. You just want to level up the content that's currently uh, performing. Mm. Yeah, because the market has already voted for that content by sharing it so much. Exactly, yeah. Okay, so you know we've got a whole bunch of actions that the listener can take, and I'm going to try and go through a few. I've been taking some notes here. So the first thing you want to do is make sure your site is mobile responsive. Always think in terms of how Google thinks, which is creating a better search experience. And because most a large part of content consumption is moving towards mobile devices. Your site must be mobile responsive. It must be easy to read on a mobile phone. You can check out the mobile friendly test, which I will link to within the show notes of this episode. And that is a Google tool. You can do periodic testing and it works well for things like page title descriptions. So try testing this page title for a month and then try another page title and see how that works. You can check out annotations in Google Analytics. I'll be doing that to tell yourself what changes you've made at certain points in time and, you know, be able to then see or measure the effect of those changes uh, within your Google Analytics. You can install canonical tags within your content. So if some higher ranking website or higher authority website rips it off, then it will still in signify to Google that, hey, this is the original content on this site here. Install a Yoast plugin on your website. When you create content, make sure it's really good quality content or don't create it, please. And if you do create it and it is really good content, then focus on promoting it and make sure you promote as much, if not more than you spend in creating the content. And to outreach to influencers, follow them on Twitter, find out what's working using moz.com or buzzsumo or ahrefs and use that to then work out how to improve on the content that's already working well. Mm. Question, what's the uh, difference between buzzsumo and moz? I don't understand the difference between those two tools. Okay, yeah, buzzsumo measures social shares primarily. So it will tell you how many people have tweeted or Facebook liked, etc. a piece of content. Moz, I believe, also has those same metrics. Um, Ahrefs um, also does. But you'll get the ability with the SEO tools also to understand what content gets linked to the most. And with that, if we're talking about this in terms of um, SEO, with that being the primary ranking signal, that's a metric that you certainly want to take note of. Right. Actually, how many sites are linking to that particular page? Because you'll find, and this goes back to the sort of the influencer point, influencers are really the main people that link to 
other websites. Like your customers quite often won't link to your site. They may not even have the ability to, but someone who owns and manages an influential publishing platform is the sort of person that's going to be linking out to other content. And that's the sort of person that can have the ability to affect your rankings. And I guess that will probably leave us with a a sort of a a wrap-up point. Primarily create content for influencers in your market, not necessarily your customers. um, And that will have the most impact on your search rankings. Great. Well, that was awesome, man. How do listeners find out more about you, James? And is there anything more you want to add before you say bye? They find them, to me, um, best place to go would be um, veravo.com. That leads off to the the various um, services and um, sort of agency divisions that we have. No, I think probably the only other point is I would really strongly encourage people also to go away and do some keyword research. It's not very sort of sexy or talked about topic really in SEO anymore, but really understanding what your potential prospects are searching and how they're searching will give you so much great information on the content you should be producing, the messaging that should exist on your website, and ultimately how to optimize it for better search results as well. So yeah, go away and do that. But how do you know, let's say you've just started up an agency, I don't know, a Facebook agency or something. How do you know what keyword term you should be researching in the first place? Really, all good keyword research actually just starts with a little bit of understanding about your market and mm-hmm. um, how do you think your prospects would be right. searching for you based on the language that they use with you in conversations and how they describe your product to you when they talk about it and start with those insights. And there's lots of great tools. Moz have a fantastic new tool that we're really loving called Keyword Explorer that's great for discovery. You can use Google's own tool called the Keyword Planner. And all of those tools, based on the original sort of seed ideas that you put into the tool, will give you other variations and other ideas which you can go and explore. But to start with, you just need to you know, just have some idea on how your um, prospects describe what you do and you start there and then you just sort of dig a little bit deeper as you go. Which is your favorite tool? I mean, I've had John Henshaw from Raven Tools. I've, had, I've talked to all these people. Which is your favorite tool for SEO? Don't really have a favorite. We, we have a suite of tools that we've come to use and rely on more so than other ones. And in our sort of a suite of tools right now, we're using Moz, we're using Ahrefs, we're also using uh, SEM Rush and we're using Majestic SEO. Those are the sort of four main analysis tools. We use some other ones for technical sort of auditing, uh, which probably not going to be relevant for our listeners, but we use a lot of something called Screaming Frog, which goes mm-hmm. and basically crawls your site to find um, issues. And then, of course, we going to look at the tools from the people who are actually determining the search results. And that's looking at Google Webmaster Tools or Search Console, as it's now called, um, Mm -hmm. and also looking inside Google Analytics. And uh, those would be the main ones, yeah. Man, we could keep talking forever, but I think you have to go, and so do I. So thank you so much for (laughs) your time. It's been really great having you on, James, and I'm sure we'll continue the conversation at some point. Absolutely. Thanks again, Ash. Appreciate it. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for listening to the Productive Insights Podcast. You can find all the links in the show notes below this episode on ProductiveInsights.com. You can also ask questions in the comment section that Ash personally answers. How can Ash help you today? 